0: This is a Kitty Pod Production. Welcome to CR Crime, the only podcast that deals with stories about true crime from New York's capital region. I'm your host, Jason Bullitt. This week, we mark the end of our series on serial killer turned burglar Gary Evans by covering his murders, robberies, manhunt, and watery demise in the Hudson River back in August of 1998. But first, a bit of housekeeping up top. After this week, we will take the next week off for the Labor Day weekend here in the States. And not only that, every episode from September 10th onward will be every two weeks. That way, we don't run out of material and can keep the podcast going longer. Now with all that out of the way, let's wrap up our look at Gary Evans. When last we left Gary Evans, he had been laying low since his unsuccessful attempt at winning back an ex-girlfriend named Stacy after a trip out west to California. But you can't keep a good criminal down, and Evans would resume the upstate New York murder-robbery tour after almost two years off the road. This time it was a solo act especially with former partners Michael Falco and Damian Cuomo having since gone to the hereafter by Evans' hand. In October 1991, Evans made a stop at Little Falls, a city in Herkimer County, to case another job. This time, he spent two weeks on top of a building's roof with a coin and jewelry shop on the first floor. The owner of said shop was Gregory Jobin. On October 17th, Evans walked into the shop asking Jobin to appraise a piece of jewelry. While doing so, Evans whipped out a 22 caliber pistol, not the Ruger from two years earlier according to Radford University, and shot Jobin, 36, in the back of the head three times. Not wanting a repeat of the Watertown robbery, Evans carried a pillowcase to catch the spent cartridge shells. However, he had forgotten other objects where he had spent the previous fortnight staking out the building. Evans gathered those objects, along with $60,000 worth of goods, and fled, leaving Jobin dead in the store. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his last name, but we're going with it. Needless to say, the otherwise quiet Little Falls in Herkimer County communities, the latter of which being sparsely populated, were left in shock and outrage over the murder. Evans fled to Colorado for what turned out to be a weekend stay, as he returned to New York two days later. Evans put the shotgun in a metal box along with another such weapon and drove to the Albany Rural Cemetery in Menands, a mile or so away from your narrator's workplace. He buried the box in the back of the cemetery property and made one more theft. This time, he used an engine crane to steal a half-ton marble bench brought the bench straight to New York City, and sold it. In March 1993, no word if the blizzard affected his plans, Evans took his crime spree over the state line into Vermont. Kathy Alexander found that her antique shop in the town of Quechee had been robbed of priceless diamonds, some gold, and even a rare handbag. All told, the items combined for a value of $20,000. To paraphrase Paul McCartney and John Lennon, he came in through the bathroom window, Evans that is, to make the robbery. At first, Alexander had no idea it was Evans, but came clean two years later and admitted it was him. It took over two years for police to arrest Evans for the theft of the bench from the cemetery, but they did just that on January 10th, 1994. Evans returned to the Albany County Jail and was placed in a cell next to Jeffrey Williams another notorious serial killer whose misdeed will be a subject for a future episode of this podcast. Jim Horton and another investigator used Evans to try and extract information from Williams about how he murdered his girlfriend. The following month, Evans was released, though both the police and Horton were still unaware that Evans had racked his murder count up to four. Falco, Cuomo, Douglas Berry, and now Jobin. Despite that lapse, the prosecution was hoping that Evans would keep his nose clean so he could testify and help build their case against Williams at his trial. Whatever hopes they had were dashed on March 20, 1994, when Evans broke into the closed Norman Williams Library in Woodstock, Vermont, and stole a copy of John James Audubon's book, Birds of America. Unbeknownst to Evans, there was a federal judge on the library's Board of Trustees at the time. Several months later, Evans turned himself in for theft of the book, which he returned to get his sentence down to 27 months in prison from the mandated 25 years to life sentence, even though he tried to sell the book to a federal prison inmate. Evans formally received that sentence a year later on June 9, 1995. He was released after only 363 days on June 6, 1996. The book Evans stole never made it back to the library, so far as your narrator knows. It was sold at auction in 2002 for $300,000, more than enough to cover the late fees. As the year 1997 began, Evans added the Thursday of the Capital Region's tri-state area to his robbery list when he burgled an antique shop at the Jennifer House Commons, an outlet center in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, of $80,000 worth of merchandise. When the year reached its halfway point, he sold the jewelry in Albany. Police sussed out that it was among the same goods that were stolen in the Berkshires. Evans later set fire to the antique shop, burning it to the ground. Early in the morning of October 3rd, 1997, Tim Ryersdorf made a phone call to his wife. It would be the last time anyone would hear from him. Later that day, he was helping Evans clear out a shed holding their ill-gotten gains at the Spare Room 2 storage facility in Latham when he met the same fate as Falco and Cuomo before him. Having a long memory and believing that Reyersdorf had tricked them into thinking Falco had stolen the necklace from the episode of two weeks ago, when he actually did the stealing himself a dozen years earlier, Evans shot Reiersdorf three times in the back of the head with the same weapon he used six years to the month of the Little Falls robbery. Evans then dismembered the body with a chainsaw and placed the remains in five separate bags. He then tossed the handgun over a fence on its way out of the storage facility, landing in a nearby ditch that ran alongside Interstate 87, known to us locals as the Northway. It is a spot your narrator has known and been past maybe because he used to work nearby. But I digress. Evans tossed the chainsaw into the Hudson River, foreshadowing perhaps, and buried Reiersdorf's body, or what was left of it, on a steep hillside in the town of Brunswick. Or so was his rationale. It was then that Evans jumped his probation. The chainsaw was never recovered, nor was it found, and for seven months, the same could be said of Evans. This triggered a nationwide manhunt, the day after the murder, Evans assumed the alias of Lou Murray, or simply Lou, and called Lisa Morris, Cuomo's girlfriend from the last episode of this podcast, asking about Ryersdorf's whereabouts. Lisa had no response, and Evans claimed he was a work friend of Reiersdorf's returning a call. The day after that, Evans slash Murray called again, this time saying that Ryersdorf might be gone like Falco. On May 27, 1998, police ended the manhunt and arrested Evans without incident in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. At the time of his arrest, Evans had adopted the life of a survivalist by living in a tent outside of town. When the authorities finally apprehended Evans, he gradually confessed to the murders of Falco, Cuomo, Barry, Jobin and Ryersdorf, doing so mostly during the week of June 15, 1998, and much to the surprise of federal authorities. On June 3rd, he was transferred from the Vermont jail wherein he was held back over the state line to the Albany County Jail. Evans was now a federal prisoner who had been placed in protective lockdown for most of his stay. He also helped police in recovering the bodies of Falco, Cuomo, and Ryersdorf. Falco's body had been buried in Lake Worth, Florida, as you may recall as well from two weeks ago. Jim Horton, who makes his last appearance in this series, forced Evans to call Morris on June 24th and fess up that he killed Cuomo, her boyfriend, eight and a half years earlier. He also confessed to killing Falco on that day and helped recover his body in Florida. Evans did not make the trip down south in this instance as he was deemed too much of a flight risk. Dental records helped identify the body as Falco's on July 14th, according to Troop G of the New York State Police. With local media here in the Capital Region abuzz and running with the story that Evans had gone from burglar to serial killer, he was formally charged with eight counts of murder on August 12th. Evans was eligible to receive the death penalty for the murder of Tim Ryersdorf, as the latter witnessed the murder of Michael Falco. The Albany County District Attorney's Office announced that they would decide within 120 days to see if they wanted to pursue that action. The day before, Evans confessed to both Horton and Joe Ream that he had planned an escape. On the fateful morning of August 14, 1998, Evans was being transported from the Albany County Jail, where he had a parole hearing, to the Rensselaer County Jail in Troy. The previous day, Evans was arraigned on an additional count of murder in Little Falls for the murder of Jobin in 1991. Little did the officers involved know that Evans had smuggled two sets of handcuff keys up his left nasal passage prior to his transport, and furthermore, he had loosened his hands free while in the police van. The van had just gotten under the Troy Manans Bridge, which carries Route 378 over the Hudson River, when Evans broke free by kicking out a passenger side window. Evans ran to the center of the bridge, all the while surrounded by four U.S. Marshals, taking off his handcuffs and giving a middle finger gesture with his right hand to the authorities before jumping into the river 62 feet to his death. An autopsy revealed that Evans had keys from both the U.S. Marshals Service and the Troy Police Department shoved up his nose. A razor blade on the other side, another razor blade, and a paperclip taped to his ankle. But of greater importance was a suicide note that he left behind prior to his fatal jump. Horton received a note saying that Evans would live a miserable life and not be able to see his then-girlfriend, Doris Sheehan. The note ended with two words which summed up Evans's attitude towards society and probably the universe itself. I win. For those of you who would like to learn more about the people involved in this series, may your narrator refer you to a book called Every Move You Make, written in 2005 by W. Michael Phelps. Also, in terms of visual entertainment, Investigation Discovery has featured Jim Horton's work in this case in the very first episode of the series To Catch a Killer Inside the Chase entitled Sympathy for the Devil, and the second episode of To Catch a Killer. Entitled The Monkey on My Back. Both are available for your viewing pleasure on the ID Go app. Hashtag not a sponsor. Thanks for listening to this episode of CR Crime, the only podcast that deals with tales of true crime from New York's capital region. This podcast is written, produced, narrated, and edited by yours truly, Jason Bullitt. Also host of the Keep It to Yourself podcast, of which this is an offshoot. If you like this podcast, you can review this and my other podcast, in fact the whole feed, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the Podcatcher of your Choosing. Or better yet, tell a friend and those in your circle. That's the best way that podcasts help get promoted and get more listeners. We'll talk again in two weeks. Until then. I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe out there. Bye-bye. Evans B This time, it was a building with a... Ah, completely lost it now.